Welcome to Sights and Sounds, a podcast series presented each year by the Gotham Center for New York City History for Open House New York Weekend. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, the Gotham Center's director. And this year, because COVID-19 robbed us of the many spaces normally open to the public each fall by this wonderful event, we decided on something a little different. Because we're all stuck at home instead of traipsing around this city we love, this season of Sights and Sounds focuses on locations that can't be visited anyway. Places that are long gone, that were nonetheless of great importance to New York's history. We're calling it Lost NYC. In this episode, Christopher F. Minty talks about James Rivington, the founding era British printer, and his controversial shop at Hanover Square. Now a park in the financial district, but in the late colonial period, the center of New York's publishing industry, where some of the most important works in the debate over the war for independence pro and con, were first inked. Rivington, the son of an English bookseller, established himself in the city during the 1760s, publishing several newspapers that, he claimed, reached every corner of the global British Empire. Because of his supposed loyalism, a mob led by the Sons of Liberty burned and looted his influential print shop in 1775. But two years later, after the battle for New York ended with British occupation of the city, Rivington opened again, this time as the King's Printer. He served in that capacity until the end of the war, although some historians believe as a secret member of George Washington's spy ring. Minty, the author of a forthcoming study entitled American Demagogues, The Origins of Loyalism in New York City, tells his story here. To hear the rest of this series, exploring New York City's most important historical sites and organizations, visit us at GothamCenter.org or find us wherever you get podcasts. Thanks for listening. Picture a scene. The year is 1775. The location, downtown Manhattan. It's November. The weather is crisp. The leaves in the gardens and the forest blanketing most of the island are turning shades of yellow, orange and red. There are no skyscrapers yet. Battery Park isn't here either. Just a couple of buildings that still remain dot the little British colony like St. Paul's Chapel and Francis Tavern. Not far away, nestled in his famous printing shop at Hanover Square, James Rivington is likely in his store working tirelessly to produce the next issue of Rivington's New York Gazetteer. He had published it since April 1773, meant for loyalists in the city, as well as the Hudson River Valley, New Jersey, Connecticut, and even Quebec. Rivington, like so many New Yorkers, then and now, was an immigrant. Born in London, he opened his first store, the shop at Hanover Square, until he was in his 40s. By the early 1770s, however, he had grown his gazetteer to a circulation of over 3,500 in New York. He later claimed that it reached every corner of the global British Empire. Rivington was a colonial media powerhouse. Even George Washington knew him, hundreds of miles away in Virginia, in an age of very primitive communications. By then, however, Manhattan was the second largest colony in North America and among the most important urban centers and outposts in the British Empire. Rivington, from the steps of Hanover Square, could perhaps even see and most definitely could hear the bustling of commercial activity in the East River Harbor. 
Even though the American Revolution impacted New York's commercial life, people still needed their news more than ever. And Rivington was more than happy to oblige. A businessman, he had published numerous articles and pamphlets about the imperial crisis since 1774, including items by the prominent royalist ministers Samuel Seabury and Miles Cooper attacking Alexander Hamilton and other independence-leaning colonials, as well as a number of patriot writings, including Franklin's two letters to a merchant in London, Philip Livingston's The Other Side of the Question, pamphlets by Charles Lee and Arthur Lee, and three imprints of anti-colonial Edmund Burke speeches. Rivington claimed his press was, quote, open and uninfluenced, but revolutionaries thought his neutrality dangerous, afraid of the newspaper giant would hinder their attempts to mobilize support for war in the city, other colonial states, and beyond. To men like Captain Isaac Sears, leader of New York's Sons of Liberty for close to a decade, Livington was, quote, that Judas, a most wretched Jacobitish hireling incendiary. He was a Tory, a loyalist to George III, Parliament, and the British Empire. His newspaper was infecting colonists' minds and turning them against the revolutionary cause. He had to be stopped. Rivington wasn't the only printer in Manhattan, but his impressive domestic and international readership made him a problem that had to be neutralized. And so, on November 23rd, 1775, Sears led a band of revolutionaries down from New Haven, Connecticut to Hanover Square as part of a mission to, quote, disarm Tories. When they arrived, at least 100 patriots had readied themselves outside to stop Rivington, quote, circulating poison in print. Guards were placed at every possible exit. Rivington was trapped. It had to be a threatening image indeed. One newspaper report said the guards were ready, quote, with bayonets fixed. After the hundred or so light horse had positioned themselves, a delegation entered the store. Rivington was given just one option, surrender his types. Equipment of the highest value, essential to printing. Which he did. Immediately, they were destroyed. Followed by three huzzas from the 1,500 spectators who had gathered, according to the same newspaper. Rivington, meanwhile, smeared as a Tory, was soon forced into exile, back to London, after failing with another Manhattan newspaper later in the war. Not everybody approved of Sears' actions. Loyalists such as Charles Ingalls, rector of Trinity Church, deemed his actions barbaric, as did some patriots, including Hamilton, who told John Jay, quote, though I am fully sensible how dangerous and pernicious Rivington's press has been and how detestable the character of the man is in every respect, yet I cannot help disapproving and condemning this step. These were, quote, times of such commotion, Hamilton added, expressing his concern that Sears's actions can make things worse for other New Yorkers, telling Jay, quote, they will imagine that the New Yorkers are totally, or a majority of them, disaffected to the American cause which makes the interposal of their neighbors necessary, or that such violences will breed differences and effect that which they have been so eagerly wishing, 
a division and quarreling among ourselves. Everything of such an aspect must encourage their hopes. But was Manhattan really a hotbed of loyalism during the American Revolution? As has often been said, almost certainly not. New Yorkers such as Sears, Hamilton, Jay, and numerous others contributed to the downfall of British rule, political and legal, in the city months earlier. By November, they were working to standardize their views, effectively telling New Yorkers, you're either with us or against us. There was no middle ground for the neutral or disaffected. What's more, prominent loyalists had already fled the city, most notably King's College President Miles Cooper and popular assemblyman James Delancey Jr., who had returned to Britain in an attempt to persuade the government to satisfy some of the revolutionaries' demands. During the war, neither Cooper nor Delancey ever returned to the city, although the circumstances for loyalists in New York, like Rivington, changed drastically the very next year after British occupation began. Indeed, after the revolutionary summer of 1776, the British army and navy forced revolutionaries like Sears out. Until the end of the war in 1783, New York was not only British occupied, but the center of British military operations in all of North America. It became home to some of the most prominent and infamous British figures during the war. Generals Henry Clinton and John Burgoyne, Major John Andre, and the future King William IV of the United Kingdom, who is then serving in the Royal Navy. Prominent loyalists also fled to New York, where they were welcomed at first with open arms. The population rose by 25 to 30,000 as loyalist refugees throughout the colonies came in search of refuge. Just as it became the center of British military operations, it also became the center of loyalism in the empire. New York officials worked hard to show that the royal government, that Americans were not all rebels. There were thousands of loyalists here, as Trinity's minister Charles Ingalls argued in various petitions, such as the Declaration of Dependence, signed by at least 547 loyalists just after the more famous declaration in November 1776. Ingalls authored another declaration after the success of his first, which he left in a Wall Street tavern for three days for people to sign as they came in for a drink and a bite to eat. The document probably took up an entire table. Over 700 people signed, including prominent New Yorkers who couldn't sign their name. There were native New Yorkers, as well as German, Scot, Dutch, and Welsh immigrants. People who didn't want to, quote, dissolve the political bands with Britain and sought, quote, a speedy restoration of that union. Both of these declarations, preserved at the New York Historical Society, mirrored a long forgotten cause that was quite popular and ran just alongside the Patriots' better known fight for independence. Wartime New York served as their headquarters and its press essential to their efforts. New Yorkers had published a series of loyalist petitions prior to the destruction of Rivington's print shop and the colony's royal governor, William Tryon, had sworn thousands of New Yorkers in an oath of allegiance to the crown, administered before the looming presence of the British army two months later in January 1777. Tryon sent the 50-some page document to British ministers across the Atlantic, 
and later did the same with thousands in Brooklyn and Long Island. But the city's turn to loyalism, whether real or forced, did not inspire the British ministry. After Rivington returned to London, he submitted a plan for a, quote, American Gazette to be published in New York, a loyalist newspaper that would be, quote, invariably devoted to support the measures of the government against a restless and implacable faction and include nothing from, quote, the avowed enemies of King George and his parliament. This document, held at the University of Michigan, offered the template for Rivington's last Manhattan newspaper, the Royal Gazette, which he published as the King's official North American printer. It was lauded by other loyalists, naturally, as the only newspaper, quote, worth reading. But for all his trouble, Rivington earned just a mere 100 pounds a year, roughly $16,000 today. British faith in North Americans' loyalty to the Crown never really increased. Rivington, however, is an especially curious case, for he was not only the most controversial of supposed loyalists in the early and mid-1770s and the King's printer in the latter part of the decade, but in the view of some historians, he was a spy for the American cause. By 1779, his press was in decline and he had difficulty even getting his little salary. Like so many New Yorkers today, he pursued other gigs, moonlighting to make ends meet by opening a coffee house for British officers, for instance. That was also a means of getting closer to his newspaper sources too. Robert Townsend, a merchant who has been identified as another of Washington's spies, financed the coffee house in part. And Rivington did business with Austin Rowe, another spy, who purchased his failing newspaper from him. It was allegedly on the paper he used for the Royal Weekly that messages were written in, wait for it, invisible ink, something Washington referred to in his correspondence with other members of the so-called Culper Ring. According to this theory, Rivington's coffee house served not just as a source for his loyalist paper, but for Washington and the Continental Army. Now, to be sure, the the evidence linking Rivington to espionage is murky. Was he truly a spy? Maybe. But he also maintained an active correspondence with prominent loyalists and how he would have managed to continue spying on British officers in British New York is frankly beyond me. But the sources are there and historians have given persuasive arguments to indicate his pro-American espionage, now serialized in turn Washington spies in which Rivington is described as, quote, an ingratiating backslapper. Rivington stayed in Manhattan after the war, well after the last British ship left on 25 November, 1783. The holidays New Yorkers used to celebrate is evacuation day. His mark on the city remains as well, most notably in the Lower East Side Street that bears his name, commemorating his powerful contributions to revolutionary era Gotham. His print shop is long gone, but his influence, perhaps to both sides of the conflict, is not lost. Thanks for listening to this episode of Sights and Sounds. Be sure to check out the rest of the series, available wherever you get podcasts. And visit us at gothamcenter.org to learn more about all of our programming here at the Gotham Center for New York City History. Post-production for this season was provided by Garrett Tiedemann, for Citizen Racecar. Special thanks to Dina Ecker 
and Jessica George for their help in the making of this episode. I'm your host and the show's producer, Peter Christian Eigner, director of the Gotham Center for New York City History at the Graduate Center, City University of New York. Be safe, everyone.